you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We're talking about an untamed God. A God who is larger, more creative, as Joel was just saying. He can do beyond what we can ask or imagine, what we can dream. Whatever your dreams are, they're not as big as what God is. And he is an untamed. We, we can't put him in a box. Today we're talking specifically about the, the, the God, Jesus Christ, the God who lovingly confronts. Now I have to admit something here, okay? By nature, by nature, we're critical. By, by nature, we are people judgers, aren't we, when you see other people? Don't tell me you've never thought, I can't believe she wore that. Don't tell me when somebody drives in a new vehicle that you, did, that you didn't think, he bought that? Don't tell me that you've never had that thought, do they own a mirror? And comparing ourselves to others kind of boosts our self-esteem, and so that's what psychologists tell us. But if we talk to Christians, they say, oh, we're just being honest. We're being critical, but, but we're being honest. By nature, we are people judgers. By nature, also, we are people pleasers. Is that not true? How do I look in this? Oh, you look wonderful in that. Has your wife ever asked you that? Does this look good on me? Now, in my defense, I, I only honestly tell the truth on that. My, my wife always looks great in everything. Now, we do that, don't we? We're also people pleasers. We want people to like us. We, somebody does something horrible to us and we kind of sweep it under the rug. Oh, it wasn't that bad. I, I mean, it, you know, we don't really want to confront them because... You know, we don't want to hurt their feelings. And again, if you go to a Christian, you say, why didn't you confront this thing? This was evil. This was a wrong thing to do. Why didn't you confront that? What do we say? Oh, we love them too much to hurt them. So if by nature we're people judges and by nature we're people pleasers, those two don't really jive. Those two don't really, you, you, you can't seem to combine them. And yet Jesus did. He lovingly confronted Ephesians chapter 4, 15, Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, and he's telling them they need to learn to do this. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him that is, who is the head, that is Christ. If we want to mature, if we want to grow as Christians, we learn, need to learn to speak the truth. That's the hard thing sometimes, but we do it in love. And those two have to be Meshed. They have to be combined. They have to be one inside the other. And you can't have the one without the other. If, if someone comes up and they've made a mistake and you say, yes, I get to confront them, that's bad. Confr confrontation should not be your default mode. You should not say, yes, they made an error. I will point that out to them. But if you've never confronted someone, that's bad. And here's what we're going to see today. Jesus teaches us the value of speaking the truth in love. And I think you're going to be shocked when you see how many times he really did that. Because sometimes it's so subtle that we don't get it. Look at a very, very familiar passage, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through, through 12. Because Jesus models radical confrontations. This is, this is radical in several ways. And I'm using the word radical in its original form because it really means root, base, the, a, 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 the radia from the Greek literally means that which is the very basic, that's the very foundation that you're building on. 
Look at, at Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum. Been there, it's too cool. I can I, I just I, I can't get this out of my mind. I've been to this house. I believe this was at Peter's house in Capernaum, right on the, the shore of Galilee. When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And again, the, the New Testament homes many times had a large gathering place in the middle, and each time a child would get married, they would put another room or, or, or bedroom on the outside so that it became this large compound around. So they were filling the middle room, plus all the rooms where they could hear from the other bedrooms, and there still was no room. So this is a huge crowd, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. You know how many times I've read this and I, and I missed that part? Jesus was preaching. And what was he preaching? He was preaching his word. He is the Logos. He is the word of God. And yet he was preaching the word to them. Verse 3, some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. You need to, again, understand in the New Testament homes, many times they were made of rock Many times on the outside, the, the, the roof, they didn't have a lot of good timbers, so they didn't put a solid roof. They would put a thatched roof on it, and, and they would put uh, many times all kinds of the, whatever wood they could find, and then they would begin to adobe it. They would put mud on it. They would put more thatch, and they would just add layer on layer, and it was somewhat waterproof, but it was sometimes a little leaky. And they got up there and they realized if we go up to the roof, many times there was a step. It was solid enough. You could step on it. They would go up there in the cool of the morning, the cool of the evening, and catch a breeze. And they went up the steps on the outside of the house and they began to dig through the thatch, begin to dig through this mud, this adobe. Can you imagine if you're underneath, you're in the house, and all of a sudden you hear the scratching because with thatched roofs, sometimes that's just a rat. But these were some four big rats up there. And the, the roof began to, come, uh, come, began to come down. After digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, to this man who's paralyzed, Son, son. He didn't say stranger. He didn't say man. He didn't say young man. He didn't. He said, son. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? By the way, were they right? Yeah, he's the only one that can forgive sins. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, Take your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. You know the story. It's a story that I've spoken on. It's a story that we've looked at together. But there's something here that we've missed. And, and, and let me just show you four things from this and, and, and just talk about this for a minute. Number one, Jesus displays radical love here. He displays incredible love. Jesus preached the word to them. Jesus was preaching to them. Can you imagine 
I, I mean, I've heard some really great speakers in my time. I, I've gotten to listen to some people uh, when I was growing up. Uh, my dad would bring these great speakers from Dallas Theological Seminary, from, from the Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles. They would come in. They would come in for revivals. They would come in for, for conferences. And I've heard some of the greatest speakers, I think, that were alive today. But can you imagine listening to Jesus' message? You know, don't you wonder which passage he went to? Don't you wonder what he was speaking about? But here's what's amazing. They didn't pay attention. They absolutely ignored what he said. You say, well, Pastor, I don't see that in the the passage. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment, what did he say? Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And what's the second is to love others as yourself. There's no chance that somebody arrives at that home trying to get in And the word doesn't spread that there's somebody out there, a paralytic, that wants to see Jesus. And they didn't do what Jesus had to be speaking about. To love the person that's being brought in, the the preaching of Jesus does not always make us more like Jesus if we ignore it. Mark Buchanan is is a pastor from Canada that I just really enjoy reading. He wrote a book called Your Church is Too Safe. He says this, The irony in this story is an irony present even in some of our best churches. The proclamation of the word does not always translate into our doing of the word. In other words, people flock to it, but people fail to heed it. That's the the message. Because at the heart of the word is welcoming the stranger. It's loving the least of these. It's becoming those who bring shalom, peace, to those who have no peace, to those who have no shalom. This church couldn't give a rip. It's about getting the best seat. Forget all the rest of you. So a man on a stretcher, a woman in a wheelchair, a woman of the night, a man with a monkey on his back, a kid with ADHD, I'm not going to give up my privileged position for their sake. If they didn't have the good sense to get here on time, that's not my problem. I'm I'm here to hear a good sermon. If that single mother can't keep her quiet, her kid quiet, You know, that's what medication's for, honey. The ushers should escort them out. You think, well, Mark Buchanan's being too tough on him. No. Mark Buchanan hit it exactly right. That was the attitude as they showed up that day. It was, I want to be near Jesus, and we don't really care about these other people who've been brought up. And Jesus is the one who shows love. If Jesus is in the church... If Jesus is displayed in the church, if, if people see Jesus Christ in us, those who are desperate will find a way to get to Jesus. They'll find a way. They'll commit holy vandalism. They'll wreck the roof to get to him. And can you imagine, again, just think of this, a gaping hole. You're standing there and you're, you're brushing for those that had hair. It was a mess. For those, the rest of us, it was easy to clean off, you know. But all of this dust and, and all in this gaping hole and in this shaft of sunlight and the rubble and the, and, and the straw comes cons- just cascading down along with the sunlight and hitting the ground. And, and you know that the message came to a stop and, and everyone was gaping and watching. And all of a sudden, as Jesus is picking dirt maybe from his hair, he watches this silhouette just completely obliterate the this, this sun. And, and then this, this gaunt ghost of a fellow 
with wide eyes. Why? Because if you're being let down on a stretcher and you can't move, if they jostle you and you begin to roll, you can't, you can't throw your arms out. And so maybe his eyes are wide with fear. But as he gets down lower and he realizes it's Jesus, maybe just for a second there's just a tinge of hope in his eyes. And what does Jesus say to him? Get up and walk? No. What does he say? The first thing he says is, Son. Son. It doesn't say that he prayed the sinner's prayer. It doesn't say that he said that he believed, but Jesus says just the, 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 the faith that the men had lowering him down. And you know, at some point they had to turn to this paralytic and say, look, we can just go home. We can't get you in to see Jesus. We can just go home. And he says, no, let's do it. And they say, well, what about if we go to the roof? Yeah, let's do it. So at some point, the paralytic has to agree to this. And as he's coming down, Jesus says, not only the faith of the men, but the faith of the man have brought him into the kingdom. It's not formal, but at some point, that, that raggedy way as they wrecked the roof and brought this man down, that was his determination that Jesus was his only option. That's what faith is. I trust Jesus. And Jesus reached out to him. He lent him a hand when he couldn't move his own. You want to display God's love? Welcome people when they come in. You want to display God's love? Treat them with respect and dignity. Offer them a hand. That's what Jesus did even for Peter. When Peter was walking on the water, you remember the story? Matthew 14, 31, Jesus, uh, Peter's walking on the water and he begins to fall in the water and Jesus could have chastised him, but what does he do? First he says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And then he confronts him, you of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And Jesus, even in this, is lovingly confronting this one who was not a son and is now a son, and he's lovingly confronting him with radical love saying, you're part of the family. The man didn't ask for forgiveness. Jesus gives it to him. Why didn't he ask for forgiveness? Because he thinks paralysis is his overriding problem. Paralysis is not his most pressing problem. He only thinks it is. Guess what? We don't think sin is our overriding problem. We think it's anything but sin. We think it's the lack of a job or the lack of a relationship or our finances or, or something to do with our home or our future. We think that that's our most pressing problem. And the Lord says, no, your relationship with me, your relationship to the sin that you've committed is your most pressing problem. Reminds me of this man. I read this article. His daughter had a curfew and she was late. And she had a, a, a big school event that she had been looking forward to. And he says, you're grounded for a month. And, and she said, but Daddy, I'll miss this big school event. And you know I've planned for this for months. And he says, I'm sorry, you, you broke curfew. You can't go. You are grounded. And she said, Daddy, you're ruining my life. You don't understand. And he bends down close to her. And he said, honey, this is what love looks like. That's what Jesus did. Number two. Jesus engages in radical confrontation. Not only is it a, a, a radical love, but it's, it, it is a confrontation. Did you notice that the, that the spiritual, the, the, the churchy people there began to think in their mind when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, what did they think? Well, only God can forgive sins. They made a huge mistake. When you're in the presence of Jesus Christ, to think something is the same as speaking. You know, they were going to wait until afterwards. They were going to go to lunch. 
did you hear what that guy said today? He was preaching, but did you hear what he said? Uh, you know, we're going to have roast preacher for lunch today. They, they were going to wait until they got to the parking lot and stand by the horse and say, did you hear what Jesus said? He, for, he can't forget. Are you kidding me? But, but they thought it, and Jesus didn't let them off easy. He exposed their hearts, and they had challenged Jesus' authority to, to forgive sins. And, and don't miss something here, because I've had people say to me, this guy's paralytic, this guy can't move. How bad could his sins have been? They're the worst. They're the sins of the mind. They're the sins that, that get hidden, that people don't see a lot. I mean, it's not that he could go out and have an affair with someone, but he could hate. And the words from his mouth... And people who, who are so desperate to get to Jesus, when they come to him, if they're going to wreck the roof to come to Jesus, they're not your garden variety sinners. Usually they, they've done a good job of it. I think there was something deep inside this man's heart that was far worse than his physical paralysis. It was his spiritual deadness, and Jesus wanted to bring him to life. He had exotic strains of sin, and he, he needed bone-deep forgiveness. I'll, I'll never forget, we were in the church in Holtville, and, and a little boy started to come to Awana, and I saw him there, and he was, boy, he was a pistol. I mean, he, had, he was a worse behavior problem, and we didn't know what to do with him, and I talked with him several time and, and times, and, and I was helping out with Awana, and I was coming, and, and uh, the, the director of Awana said, Pastor, it's your turn to give a message, and I gave him a message that night. And I saw this little boy, and there was this wild look in his face. And I talked about Jesus being on the cross, and I talked about him dying for all of our sins. And I told my testimony of when I was a little boy and I accepted Jesus. And afterward, all the other kids scattered, and they were going to go get their awards and all this. And the little boy came up to me, and he pulled down on my shirt to get me down close to him. And he says, hey, mister. I said, yes, sir. He said, could Jesus do that for me? I said, yes, he did do that for you. He said, what do I have to do? Where do I sign up? And we knelt right there, and he prayed. And he got up from his knees, and most little kids aren't like this. But as he was walking out through the door, he went, yes! And the next Sunday morning, he brought his mom. They came trudging in, and you could see the mom. It was like, you know, her skirt was a little too short and her blouse was a little too low and she wasn't comfortable being in church. It was probably the best clothes she had and she wasn't comfortable at all. And he said, we're going to the front row. No, 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 no. I'm not going to the front row. And she went about halfway down and I gave the message. And it wasn't particularly a salvation message, but obviously he had talked to his mom because when, I, when we started to sing the last song, all of a sudden I looked up and all of her mascara was running all the way down her face to the point that it was, it was literally staining her blouse. And she came down and she, she knelt in front of a chair. And a woman from the church came and, and began to deal with her and, and talk with her and pray with her. And then the woman dealing with her began to cry too. And after people had kind of cleared, I went to see what was going on and sat and talked with the two of them. And this woman came to Jesus Christ. And she said, are you sure that Jesus could forgive me? I said, oh, absolutely. When we reach those that seem far from Christ, though, it's amazing how many of the spiritual, the churchy people begin to have this attitude of, are they really good enough to be in our church? Are, are they really, do you think God can work with them? 
2 Timothy 2.26 says that the devil uses them to do his will. And, and Mark 11.15 talks about when Jesus did this confrontation of those who were the, the most religious on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple. This is right after the triumphal entry. Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the table of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Do you understand? These were employees of the temple. These were churchy people. These were the people who should have known better. And he confronts them. And even the disciples in, 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 Mark, or in Matthew 15, when the disciples have been with him virtually the whole three years, and he tells a parable, and they say, we still don't get it. He turns to him and says these loving, way, these loving words, are you so dull? I mean, in our vernacular, hey, wake up. What's wrong with, why don't you get this? Jesus engages in radical confrontation. Number, four, uh, number three, Jesus provides radical healing. Confrontation is worse than useless unless it's followed up by action. Confrontation that's just words is really useless. But Jesus backs up what he says because when he confronts them, he, he, he says, listen, you can't tell for sure if I can forgive sins, but I can heal and you will be able to see that. So he healed the man to prove he'd forgiven the man. You know, you think about that. You, your sins are forgiven. If, if somebody said to you, your sins are forgiven, those are pretty cheap words unless you pay for them on the cross. Those are pretty cheap words unless it means that you come from the eternity of glory in, into this world and you live a, a, basically a pauper's life, a servant's life, and you give your life for other people. Those are pretty cheap words unless they're not. I can forgive what you do to me. If, if someone writes me a nasty note, and I believe me, I get plenty of those. If somebody does something horrible to me, I can forgive them. But I can't forgive what you might do to other people. Only God can do that. And what was he saying to this man when he says, your sins are forgiven? Every twisted thought, every nasty idea, every poison word has been removed. His sins no longer defiled him. His sins no longer defined him. His sins no longer bound him. But we can't verify that. You know, it's, it's impossible to see. You can say the words, and we don't know for sure if it's happened. I've been paying bills online, and it's kind of neat because you pay it, and then it says, go to this next thing, and it'll give you a confirmation number. And you write down the confirmation number so you know that your bill was paid in full, and, and you just feel good about the fact that it's done, and you didn't have to go to the post office. And Sorry, Gary. But it, it's done. You, you've paid your bill, and you got the confirmation. But you don't get that with the Lord, and so Jesus healed his body to prove he'd forgiven his sins. And the truth is, folks, if we had somebody come in today and they were paralyzed and, and God allowed his body to be completely healed and he walked out on his own two feet, we would go, praise God, that's awesome. But when we have someone who comes in whose heart is as black as can be, who has all kinds of problems internally, who who has been bound by sin for all of his life, and Jesus heals them, and they walk out, we say, well, let's wait and see. Don't we? We don't take sin seriously. And if we don't take sin seriously, we don't take forgiveness seriously. We cheapen sin, and that, that cheapens forgiveness. 
there's clear evidence that we don't take forgiveness seriously because there's so many people who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ who will not forgive other believers. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, may have gotten away with it except Nathan was sent by the Lord to make sure that he really didn't. And the truth is there's no way that other people didn't know. In Psalm 51, David writes, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. The most radical healing you'll ever get is not for an arm or a leg or an eye or a cancer or a heart attack. The most radical healing you'll ever get is your heart when, it, when you come to Jesus Christ and he cleanses you from all sin. Here's the fourth thing. Jesus receives radical worship. He got up and took his mat and walked out in, in, in full view of all of them, it says. And, and I think that's, that's really kind of an amazing thing. It's pretty hard to argue with those results. But it, then it says that everyone praised the Lord. Everyone praised the Lord. Even the people who were critical, even the ones that he called on it, even the ones... I mean, it's hard not to praise the Lord when you see somebody that's been paralyzed for years get up and walk out. I mean, it's hard not to say, praise God, this, this man's been restored. And the truth is, when God comes into our life and he heals us spiritually, we ought to worship him. The woman at the well has been married five times. She's living with someone who is not her husband at the time. And what does Jesus talk to her about? He talks to her about worship, that you worship in spirit and in truth. A, a person who comes through a hole in the roof, who wrecks the roof to get to Jesus, when they understand what Jesus has done, they worship. In the Old Testament, it's still the same. Josiah was a, a boy king. He comes in, and, and as, a, as a child, he doesn't really know what's happening. And, and by that time, God's word was not read on a regular basis, and those in the temple had gone way away from, from the Lord. And finally, Josiah finds God's word. They bring it to him. They begin to read it, and he begins to tear his clothes. He realizes how far they've wandered away from God, and he t he's so overwrought, he just begins to rip his clothes in agony. He calls all the people, and they read it in front of all the people. 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 20, uh, verse 22 says, Not since the days of the judges who led Israel. Don't miss that. That means through David's reign and through Solomon's reign. That means all the way through uh, Gideon and, and through all of those judges. Not since the days of the judges who led Israel, not, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. When they read it and they realized it was Passover time, Yom Kippur, and they come and they bring the lamb, and all of a sudden the people, there's this revival and, and there's this huge change of heart. And you say, well, what specifically was involved? It doesn't say. Because it was not about how many lambs they sacrificed. It was not about how big a show it was. It was what happened in their hearts. And they worshipped. What would happen to us if we as a church began to worship the Lord in such a way that when we sang holy, 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 the tears ran down our faces, not for a show, but because we're so moved. What would happen to us when we sing, when we worship, when we pray, when we give, when, when we were so excited that when we came, I would have to say to you, you know what, you've given so much, we need to skip the offering today. It happened in the Old Testament. 
It happened when they were giving toward the tabernacle. It happened again in the days of David it, that, that the people were worshiping the Lord so much, they gave so much, they said, stop! We don't know what to do with all this money. And you say, that'll never happen in the church. It won't as long as we think that. What would happen if Jesus received the worship he should receive? You know, I've got some other verses, and I'm not going to go there. I'm going to stop right here. Because this is where we need to stop. There's a story about Levi coming to the Lord and bringing his friends, but this is where we need to stop because the Lord has laid on my heart that we need to be the church that finally comes and realizes that God does not want us to be comfortable anymore. God is tired of us sitting in the chairs. God is tired of us coming and going through the motions. He's tired of us coming and wanting the best place. It's obviously not the front seats. But some of you fight over the back seat. This is my seat. What would happen if we so radically changed because God so radically confronted us, this untamed God, that he began to shake us up and you say, oh, pastor, that doesn't happen anymore. Well, there was a young pastor by the name of David, and I'll close with this. He was just a young pastor. He didn't know much. He'd been through Bible college, but he really didn't understand that much. He was a pastor in Pennsylvania. He couldn't find a place to pastor, and so some people said, would you just pastor us? And they started a home church. In 18 months, they went from 52 in this home church to 260. But one day, he was reading a man by the name of Leonard Ravenhill. And when he began to read this, something clicked in his heart. And that same day as he was reading that, he began to realize that he needed to be praying more. As a young pastor, he wasn't praying at all. And he began to, to put a, aside just 15 minutes a day to pray. And that expanded to a half hour. And then it expanded to an hour. And then suddenly he, this, this young pastor, David, was, was praying two hours a day. And one day, just after the prayer time, he flipped on the TV. And there was, in New York City, there were seven gang members that had been arrested. And he saw these seven young men and, and he and he said Jesus Christ died for those seven young men I live in Pennsylvania but I believe God is calling me to go speak to those seven young men and he got up from where he was in Pennsylvania and he went to New York City and he went into the courtroom the next day and he tried to approach him and the bailiff said you can't these guys are the defendants you can't approach him he says God sent me a message and he said I don't care who sent a message you can't talk to them and so he stood up as the proceeding started and he talked to the judge. Judge, I have a message for these seven young men. Can I just have a half hour after? Can I have 20 minutes? Can I have 15 minutes? And the judge could not get this young pastor, David, to sit down and hush up. And they put him in handcuffs and let him out of the courtroom. And his picture was on the paper the next morning. And as he was in his hotel room that next day, still trying to figure out how he could get to that gang a man called him and says, if you really want to talk to these gang members, I can get you in to see them. And that day, David Wilkerson began a ministry in New York. Teen Challenge, there are 258 Teen Challenge locations across the nation. David Wilkerson decided he couldn't sit anymore because what he read from Leonard Ravenhill are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for. 
Are the things you're living for today worth Christ dying for? And even though he was a pastor of a church that was flourishing and doing well, he felt like that God had called him to do something else. And there have been books and movies and all kinds of things written about David Wilkerson because David Wilkerson followed what God wanted him to do when God confronted him, lovingly confronted him one day after prayer. And my question to you today is, are the things you're living for worth Jesus dying for? Let's pray. What an amazing God you are, Father. What an amazing God. You're untamed in such a way that we can't seem to grasp and get our, our minds around who you are. You love us too much to let us go the same way. And sometimes when you get in our face, you show us that this is what love looks like. So today, Father, may we examine our hearts. Father, if there's someone who, just like that woman in Holtville, just like that little boy, if there's someone who doesn't know who you are, may they not leave here today until they've sat down and talked about it and prayed about it and come to know you. But Father, for many of us, if we'd been there and listening to Jesus preach, we would have been crowding close and we would have missed the opportunity to minister to someone who was brought into our midst. So Father, wreck the roof. Tear open our lives. Do not let us be complacent. Do not let us get comfortable. Do not let us get casual in our faith. Father, stir us up. Change us up. Transform us. We invite you to come in and confront the sin in our life. May we not be comfortable until we are doing the things that you've called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.